So my message has been that whenever anyone gets asked about fixing a housing problem, they all say, well, the government should build more housing. And we're saying, well, no, it's the private industry that destroyed this market, generally because the government put in negative gearing in, which is the most ridiculous, stupid policy I've <laughs> yeah, ever heard right. of. You know, yeah. give, me, give me a dollar and I'll give you 70 cents. Um, I'll keep 70 cents and I'll give you 30 cents yeah, back. No, right? it doesn't make, it doesn't any, make sense. any sense, right? So they created this marketplace, so allow the private industry to fix it. You are entering the Age Rebels Revolution. The intelligent podcast for over 40s wanting to live their best life and defy your numbers. We are your hosts, Summer Bentley and Isaac Xavier. Come on in. Great wisdom is to come from our discussion with property investment guru, Ian Ugart. And even though his expertise is in the Australian property market, to all of our international listeners, keep listening because this man has such a beautifully altruistic approach that is applicable to not just property investment, but to life, where he is clearly making his second half his best, a living, breathing age rebel. Welcome, Ian. Second half. <laughs> You're getting to 100. <laughs> now, you have a very interesting story of how your life has evolved over the last few decades, both with property investing and also personally. You've had three turning points that began at the age of 15. Please tell us more. Yeah, so I went to a... Um, I've had a really great young youth upbringing. Nothing to complain about. Middle-class family never went without. So I went to a private boys' school, not the most expensive, um, probably the cheapest in the area in Sydney. And I won't mention the name of it, but it's Waverley College. And, um, <laughs> and we, all boys' school, and I think it was year eight, year nine, the, the um, priest and a missionary brother had finger-picked, um, <laughs> wrong term to use that, <laughs> for a Yikes. Catholic school. Um, they chose two students out of every one of our base classes. So there was somewhere between 10 to 12 students that every week on a Wednesday afternoon for about a period of eight weeks would meet in the chapel. And we thought it was just, like for me, it was just time off having to do anything else. We thought it was just a chat. And they were, we didn't really know. The name of the program was Behold the Turtle. So behold the turtle. And so we didn't really know what it meant yeah. or anything. And on the last week, we were sitting there in the chapel and we're going around and the conversation got started around how you feel and whatever. And I just sort of said, you know, sometimes people say things to me and I don't think they mean it, but it makes me feel bad. And two of the boys in that, in that group were two of the boys that would always make me feel small. And one of them actually spoke up and says, is that really how you feel? And I went, yeah, I really feel awful. Sometimes I just don't feel like it's nice and I don't feel comfortable in my own skin because of the judgments of others. And then the whole energy in the room changed and it was soft and it was empathetic and it was, wow. And I looked across at... Um, the missionary and he said behold the turtle and that was like an awakening for me because it's the first time I was soft something came out of my skin and stopped showing the hard exterior and showed the people around me the softness of who people really are mm. and for me that was the first time really of any understanding or knowledge that you could actually show some softness and that it did give you not a sense of power but a sense of acknowledgement that everyone around. So in that group, there was boys that had never even thought that that was possible or had felt like the same as me, but never mentioned it or were the perpetrators of making someone else feel bad. And the relationship with those two kids that were giving me a hard time changed after that. But interestingly, my, that was my first lot of known personal development because it started to make me realize other things, but it was more the reaction of myself post that. I went back to class and I was angry. I was angry that I'd showed the world that I was soft and that that was a weakness. Little did I know it was probably the strongest strength that I hold now. And so that was really the first thing that I remember 
And then I thought, okay, well, I'm good. I'm fixed now. <laughs> First lot of personal development. Then, of course, you realize that there's more to do. And probably the age around um, 19, I had had a bust up with a girlfriend and I was trying to find myself. And I was in a semi-professional um, football soccer career mm -hmm. so I was paid to play while I still worked in my day job like you know, those cool. days but I um six weeks into the season I got cut I couldn't get fit I train hard when I train I train hard wouldn't get fit anyway um this woman I went to see this woman who was an iridologist and naturopath and she told me a few things that she couldn't possibly know without any other reason other than looking in my eyes mm -hmm. I didn't understand what that was so she said look basically I've grabbed your attention there's some stuff going on in your body. You need to go and do this, this, and this, and I want you to go and do some colonic irrigation. And I went, what? Because oh yeah, they're going to insert a catheter into your anus and they're going to clean your colon out. I went, oh, whatever, yeah, like if that's going to help. So anyway, I got on the table, and um, Annette, who's um, known as the Pooh Fairy, um, <laughs> that's no one better. And, and can quite comfortably um, sip a cup of tea and eat some toast while she gives you a colonic. And, um, wow. So I'm lying on this table and I said to Annette, I said, I, this seems bizarre, but do you ever teach anyone how to do this? Because it's not comfortable, but it feels like the right place. And she goes, well, yeah, occasionally. We've, I've run one course and I'm thinking about running another one. And so um, she rang me one day and she said, look, I'm running another course. If you want to be part of the colonic irrigation course, you can. And so I turned up on the first night a um, little bit late because I come from a family of plumbers. So, <gasps> so, the irony. And, on, and the, the irony was on that night, the reason I turned up late was because I received an award for the highest aggregate mark for waste disposal in the plumbing <laughs> test, right? And so I've turned up to a colonic irrigation course Is after that. Yeah, oh, it's amazing, right? So... Um, so that really was the start of my second lot of personal development based on the fact that the Pooh Fairy became my first real mentor, still is. Um, she's in her 80s now and she really pulls me up in life. And the interesting part of that one was that that colonic irrigation course had nothing to do with the physical aspects of how to perform a colonic, oh, but it was yes. more about you need to deal with your shit before you're dealing with anyone else's. Oh. Yeah. Wow, because I'm thinking, I'm trying to bridge the gap between the poo the fairy and the yeah. personal development. So it, there was a lot that went on in there around me growing as a person and, and realising that there were things going on and there's things outside of my world. And... Interestingly enough, because you've got all the patient cards that are in her office, she still handwrites them all. She still performs colonic, colonic irrigations. And so crystal clear colonics in the Blue Mountains um, of Sydney. So she's teaching us all her shorthands of what she put on the cards and all the acronyms. And I picked out my card, waiting to see how amazing I was. And the, the acronym FIH is um, in there. And I went to Annette, what's this about? And she goes, um, and, and that's what was happening in your life at the time. And FIH is fucked in head. <laughs> so the first time that I'd met her, she went, this guy's got some work to do. So for her to even actually permit me into her program. And so, you know, it's one of those things when everyone in that party says, is there anyone here that can definitely say that they've done something that someone else hasn't done? I can say, yeah, I definitely, not only can I deal with waste from the start of the body <laughs> as a colonic mm. irrigation, but I can also put the pipework in from the mouth to the treatment system. And I also hold seven worldwide patents on the treatment of wastewater. Um, so I can deal from beginning to end when it comes to shit. And <laughs> so so I'm, I'm probably one of the few at any place can actually tell someone that officially that they're full of shit. Um, <laughs> And so, then, and so then I went into this period of, you know, I've, I've now definitely done all the personal development I need to do. I then, in my early 30s, realised that there was more to life than just snippets of personal development. And so I went into this process of realising that this is a lifelong project. Everyone is a lifelong project. Mm -hmm. And their ability to turn it on and turn it off is up to them, but really it should be every day. That really culminated to a point in time where, you know, we came to what we're doing today. And in my early 30s, I was relatively successful in property, was doing a number of major projects. And um, I woke up one day rich and the unhappiest I'd ever been. 
Um, So money in the bank account, um, but nothing in fulfillment. And so the money that was supposed to make me happy, which was always the goal, made me unhappier. And um, thankfully to uh, my ex-wife and uh, and a business coach, life coach at the time, they, they caught a sentence out of my day by luck that um, meant that I was 12 hours about away from actually getting my family home from a holiday and ending my life. And so I was, I was thankful for that day. I'm, I always say I'm thankful for the unhappiest day of my life because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be doing what we do today. So that was a t- massive turning point. Huge, huge, did they huge. intercept, did they, they heard something that you said yeah, we and were they intercepted? Having, yeah, the story was that we'd moved to Queensland when we didn't need to be in Sydney anymore and um, we'd travel down to see the family because really we were, is- we're isolated as a family up here. Um, spent two weeks down there and and I wasn't my normal bubblier self. I'm, I'm pretty outgoing and I'm the life of the party, introverted but still around people I know I'm out there. Um, and everyone around noticed that I wasn't the, the old Ian. And so I decided after a sleepless night before we were driving back that that was going to be the end um, for me that I needed to get my family home. And we stopped halfway, about halfway, or a bit more than halfway at Pottsville um, for a meeting that we had, to, had we had in our calendar. And it was in that meeting that I, and I don't remember what the sentence was, but I do remember looking out at, um, at the girls. I've got four daughters. Mm-hmm. And they were playing in the trees in, in, at Pottsville. And, um, and there was a few things going on. It was the, unhappiness and, and my body was all out of whack and it just nothing was in alignment you know you you're so focused on getting that success of what everyone else gets now here i am i'm speaking on stage across the country you know 265 days that year pretending to be happy on stage and that, made it feel worse that was worse because yeah. it was just all false and it was mm. fake and and as successful as the property deals were happening the only thing the thing that made it that made it the unhappiest was the only benefit out of doing those was for me. There was no one else getting anything out of it. I was building four bedroom, two bathroom shit boxes around the country for people to, you know, bring their wealth up and all it was doing was filling my bank account and that just didn't do it for me. Yeah. So was that, that was what was really missing? Because you know, you had, you know, a lot of it can be a very male thing too. It's like provided the family financially successful, good, I've made it, but my God, I'm empty inside. What was really missing for you? Yeah, um, so we went away from that that day looking at pivoting the business in a way that was going to benefit other people first. So we came up with the slogan, needs to make sense before it makes dollars. So, so it needs to benefit the community in a positive way first. And secondly, it has to be financial viable because if you can't do those both, you're going to go broke sitting at home, right? Um, so, so that's where we, we started looking for ways to be able to say, well, what can we do with the skill set that I've got or that we've got and make it so that we're fixing a problem? And housing is a huge problem in Australia. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, and so I was fortunate enough. I'm, you know, I come from an ethnic background, and it's just very normal for your parents to help you out to get into the first home, and then from there. So my parents, you know, they put a deposit on a house when I was in my first year in the plumbing business with them, not getting paid overtime, paying two hundred dollars a week. Sorry, two hundred twenty-two clear. Two hundred went towards the house. Twenty-two was in my pocket. I lived at home, but I again didn't didn't get paid overtime, and we would work from six in the morning till six or seven o'clock at night. That property was rented. We sold that three or four years later. I paid my parents back their deposit plus interest, and that gave me a deposit for my first home. Right, so I'm very fortunate. I don't, I don't shy away from. I know that there's a lot of people that don't get that benefit. Right, yeah. Um, and you've got to work your, your your ringer off to get to there. And, and for someone nowadays, of you know, anything under the age of forty, the chances. So there, there is a stat out there. If you have never owned your a home, a home or investment property by the age of 43 in Australia, you are a 3% chance of ever owning a property. Wow. Ever, ever. So, you know, it's crazy. So we said, well, what's stopping people getting into the marketplace? So we started doing research and census data and we realized that a growing fraternity of demographic are singles and couples. So we've got, um, in 2011, there was 45% of makeup of all households were singles and couples, which meant the greater majority were families, three plus. In 2016, we've hooked to 61%. 
um, in the census data in 2021, we're now at 79% of all new households that are getting created are single or double households. So you take my old household, so ex-wife and four daughters, six in our house. So now Christine has her own property and she lives in her household with one other daughter. So there's one double household. Then there's my daughter who moved in with her boyfriend. So there's another double household. There's myself and my family that we still exist. And then we've got two other daughters. So out of one household, we've ended up with six brand new households that are singles or couple households, right? So the same data is showing that 82% of all new homes that get produced in Australia right now, census data, are three, four or five bedroom houses, most of them four bedroom. So while we got 70% of the households being created singles and couples, nearly 80% of all new houses are four bedroom family homes. So we've got this mismatch in demographic to household. So while we've got these people, like I used to do, producing these four bedroom homes, we've got some problems because you know, any mismatch gets fixed, Uber, Netflix, Amazon, you know, the list goes on, right? And if you fix that mismatch, not only are you going to be well off, but you're going to be known for fixing a problem, right? So I said, okay, well, if there's a mismatch between the household sizes, how many empty bedrooms do we have in Australia? Well, back in 2012, when I first started talking about this, there were 12 million empty bedrooms every night in Australia. We're now at nearly 14 million. Right, Whoa. so we have 14 million empty bedrooms in Australia every day, and we build the largest houses in the world. Right, yeah. so our way of looking at it was well, why build more houses if we've got empty bedrooms? If we can use those empty bedrooms better, how can we actually benefit the affordability issue? And can we do it in a way where everyone wins? So, first thing was to find out whether I can take a household and divide it into sections so people can live in their sections, but still, you know, not break any planning laws or residential tenancy act. And I couldn't find, I could find some policies, but I couldn't find someone who could help me with everything because I needed to know about planning policies, residential tenancy acts, um, planning acts, disability discrimination, Australian standards in plumbing, electrical, and all the rest of it. And I'm a builder by trade. So couldn't find them. So we went out and guinea pigged ourselves and made massive mistakes all over the place, trying to work out what was right, what was wrong, who would say yes and who would say no, and all the contradictory information that all the regulators would say and who was on top of the the yes um, tree. I, by default, became the industry expert in co-living properties. So today, when they want to create a policy, I'm the guy they call. Oh, isn't that incredible? So they, <laughs> and that just happened by default, right? Yeah. And so right now, all of Western Australia, all of Victoria, all of South Australia. It used to be only three councils in Queensland, but as of a few weeks ago, all of Queensland because of um, my push at the housing summit now allows you to take a standard low density home, just like this one, and convert it into four, five or six micro apartments so that every person has their own sitting room, their own bedroom, their own bathroom, their own kitchenette without cooking equipment cut into the stove cut into the bench top, uh, they share the major kitchen, which has cooking equipment in it, and a laundry. So the benefit of that is now we're getting all these empty bedrooms, we can then convert a property. The people that are paying $500, $600 a week as a couple can now rent a component of the house for somewhere between 300 to 400. So they're saving one third to one half off their normal weekly rent. And we also include utilities. They only have to look after a part of the house because we clean the main areas and, the, and we do the yards for them. And you think, okay, that's amazing. So a house that used to rent for six, seven, eight hundred dollars a week rent now has four micro apartments, saving the people inside them money so that they can save money so the three to five years they can buy their own home. But all of a sudden, the householder is now getting double, sometimes triple the cash flow. And now we're taking the pressure off the bottom of the market because the bottom of the market at the moment has what we used to call the middle class putting pressure on the social housing waiting list. So we're lifting those people off, getting them back into housing of their own within five years and giving the government the ability to concentrate on the low socio component, which is their job, right? Um, it's not the private industry's job to fix that. So my message has been that Whenever anyone gets asked about fixing the housing problem, they all say, well, the government should build more housing. And we're saying, well, no, it's the private industry that destroyed this market. 
generally because the government put in negative gearing in, which is the most ridiculous, stupid policy I've <laughs> yeah, ever I heard agree. of. You know, yeah. give me give me a dollar and I'll give you seventy cents. Um, I'll keep seventy cents and I'll give you thirty cents yeah, back. No, right? it doesn't make, doesn't any, make sense. any sense, right? So they created this marketplace. So allow the private industry to fix it now. So I'm sort of covertly talking to investors to do this on the existing properties they own or the properties that we can buy for them on the basis that if we hit the amount of supply that we need for the demand that's there, then we're going to end up with an equilibrium where rentals will stop increasing. With rentals stopping to increase, then property doesn't become as much as a commodity as it currently is, which means prices will stagnate. And by automatically allowing our wages to grow, we're now in a place where that we actually start to afford this great Australian dream again. Wow, that's a that's a huge and like for me, I feel a tremendous sense of relief hearing that because I have a daughter who's seventeen and we're helping her put a deposit together because it's near impossible now yeah. for these young people to afford a home. Absolutely. So, you know, um, when I bought, I think the um, it was nine times the average Australian wage to be able to buy a house. We are up at about nineteen. Oh, cool. So. You know, and interest rates have just gone up and up. So those people that bought when they were down low, expecting them not to go up, are now starting to hurt. So we are looking at a 2025, mid-2025, 26 crash. When I say a crash, we're not talking 30 or 40%. We're probably talking about 10% across the board nationally. That'll mean that high-end areas that are three or $4 million houses will drop, you know, from $4 million down to $3 million. The standard houses in suburbia won't drop that much. It's those high-end ones that actually create the huge drops um, where there might be a 30 to 40% drop in those areas, but average out is about 10%. That's based on the fact that people, I like to ask questions. I like, like to go around and find out what's going on. So, you know, I drive a, a car, an electric car that, that the designer decided not to put a spare wheel in because it takes up space and weight and you hardly ever need the spare wheel. So you call up and they come out and the tow truck driver comes out and they either have a spare wheel for you that you they loan you or they tow you home so that you can take it off and take it to get repaired. Oh, well, that's a lot for a flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm talking to this tow truck driver and I go, and you're busy, mate? He goes, oh, we are flat out. And I go, where are you flat out? He goes, oh, repossessions. I said, repossessions? Really? And he goes, yeah, yeah, a lot of the people defaulting on leases. So Whoa. that to me says, and, and then so I started ringing up tow truck drivers all over the place and companies and what are you doing? A lot of repos? Yeah, we're doing a huge amount of repos. So what happens when someone starts to struggle financially? They stop going out. So those people that are in the restaurant and you know, retail industry, they're going to suffer mm-hmm. first. Secondly, they stop spending money on their leases because they want to keep paying the house loan. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they can't afford that anymore, then the houses go. So what we'll see in the next six months a year is probably a lot of mortgagee and possession starting processes, but it's 18 months to three years because banks don't want to kick people out. Yes. They'll, they'll work with them and say, hey, what can we do here? Because it's just a bad look on their books. So that's why I'm saying 2025, 26, there will be a drop, but don't expect it to be massive. Like well, whatever we're paying for today is probably what you'll end up at value in that point in time then. You're <clears throat> this wonderful model. Like it's so clever to say, don't build more, let's build mm. what we've got. Yeah. What do you call that? So um, we call it co-living. The policies that we use are either called rooming house. Um, they're basically boarding house policies. Mm-hmm. They're either older boarding house policies they didn't get rid of. When they, you know, Kerry Packer used to say, every time you introduce a new law, you should actually get rid of an old one. Well, so that doesn't happen. So they introduce a new, introduce a new planning policy, but they don't get rid of old ones. So we started using those, but with my advice around the country, they're starting to bring in new policy. And so for me, our model is everyone has their own bathroom. I I wouldn't want to have to share a bathroom with anyone else. So I don't believe anyone I don't believe anyone else in the houses that we put together should have to do that either. So that's our model. We we you know we won't do it. We won't do any share bathrooms anywhere. There are people out there that you know the Victorian policy is probably the best in the country, but they only need one toilet for ten people. I'm thinking that's just like ridiculous, right? That that planning policy needs some change, and I've given some advice to the Victorian government, but. We call it co-living. 
Because as soon as you say boarding house, people think drug dealers, criminals, yeah. pedophiles, like, you know, that, yeah, yeah. that automatically filters into someone's head. And that's the fight that I've been fighting really for a lot further since the beginning. You know, you get councils pushing back on stuff. Now, we only do our business in areas where we don't need to go to council. So if I can go to a private certifier or building surveyor, depending on which state you're in, and get a two-day to 10-day approval by ticking boxes, that's where I'll take my clients and where I'll go. Mm -hmm. If I have to deal with a council, it's an unknown. So New South Wales paid for my advice, the, the government, and didn't take it. And so it's a council application. So we, the worst place in Australia for housing affordability is New South Wales and they're the worst policy in the country. So we actually won't operate in New South Wales at all. We are running a pilot with the government to see whether that will work, but the co-living is really- That sounds better. Oh yeah, and, and so I'm a big push for, so I pioneered co-living as an investment strategy re-pioneered it so you know there was a high the people used to do it in the 60s and 70s and you generally family based and would be passed on to generation but i brought it back in as a population investor strategy based on my change of circumstances that happened by default so my next push is um, what we call adaptable housing so if you're going to build a house from scratch you really need to have a house that has the adaptability to move with the demographic of the time because mm -hmm. for one thing i noticed if we're building family homes and singles and couples are renting them then that's a misuse of the actual property yeah. so to extend on the co-living our adaptable home is a home that pink can use as a first home buyer where they can live in a and you know we can then talk about circle of life where they can start in the same home and finish in the same home right so let's take them through this this process where they're a first home buyer, they buy this property, but you know, it's hard to pay for the mortgage every week. So yeah. let's rent out components of the house because I can legally do that because this house is approved from the beginning like that. So I always say you can't legally use a family home for co-living, but you can use a co-living for a family home, right? So oh. you've got that adaptability. So this young couple goes in there, rents out rooms, pays their mortgage down, gets comfortable, says, look, let's have one child. Radio. let's move out of the studio section and we'll take a one bedroom section in the house where we still can rent out two or three other parts while we're comfortable in our own area, our own separate entrance, still the same house, but can be used as a family home and co-living. All right, let's have another child. Let's, you know, okay, well, let's rent out one area. Let's have four children. Let's take over the whole house. Let's get to the point where as each child leaves, we can then bring people in back in again so that as we get older and we get to the retiree phase, we're now um, retired with a, a caravan in the driveway back into the same place of the house that we're in when we first bought it and renting out other areas and leaving every three months and coming back. And then the most significant part of Australia right now is aging in place. So everyone says, oh yeah, just downsize and go off and live in the nursing home. They don't want to do that. They don't want to live in a retirement village. They don't want to live with people the same age. They want to stay where they know their shops, they know their parks, they know their neighbors. But more importantly, why is it they can't stay there? Because they live in these massive houses. But if this couple is living in the smaller component renting out areas and one of them falls over or slips over, it only a knock on the wall will alert someone else in the house to, okay, someone needs some help from me and they're older. So now we're actually allowing people to age in place. During that time, it might be that they decide to take a couple of different avenues. So they say, well, actually, we're all living in the house. My children are now old enough to have children. So why don't I stay in the house and we can have three generations of a multi-generational yes. family home? Why don't we, um, the siblings, all the siblings have got together and they're kicking us out. So we'll just go off in the caravan while the siblings and their partners live in the house or their friends come and live with them as well. Or actually, you know what? We're going to get a bus and go around the country and we're going to rent it out as a co-living property with two to three times more rent than the house next door while we're out and about. Um, and more importantly, if we build from scratch because of policy, we have to put disability access into these properties. So all of a sudden we've got an NDIS or SDA property that allows us to rent it to people with a disability. So we've now got seven, and I can split the house into house and granny flat. So we've now got seven different versions of the same house being used, not by any other reason other than what they decide to do on the day, because the house is adaptable enough to do that. Yeah. You know, and they might say, oh, there's too many bathrooms. I've never had a complaint from my daughters about bathrooms in our no, house. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's the next step of housing in Australia. We, we need to start thinking about the logistics of how we can make, build a house today and make sure that it's usable by every demographic in the funnel for the next 50 years. And that will be another change. So, you know, it's a, 
there's a lot of people in co-living now presenting co-living and pushing it out. I was the first 12 years ago. I've taught quite a few people and they're out doing it themselves now and showing other people how to do it as well. But realistically, I know that they talk about leaving legacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in 100 years' time, will they talk about Ian and how he changed the housing model in Australia? I doubt it. But I'd like to think that in some way I've actually created a new, because everyone said I was crazy 10, 12 years ago when I first started talking about this. Well, it's the norm now. And the biggest thing that I could do right now is actually push the banks a little bit closer to helping us out to create more of this housing because it's outside the box for now. But it'll come. It'll come with time. If you're ready to age young, discover the truth about accessing the fountain of youth and claiming your best ever health, jump into our free Facebook group where we share the best information, including behind the scenes of our podcast and coaching. Just search for the group Defy Your Numbers or email us at hi at agerebels.com and we will add you. This community living sounds wonderful, Ian. We know loneliness is in epidemic proportions, especially after the last few years. Have you received any feedback from the residents about greater connection and togetherness? Yeah, I mean, COVID, COVID was a really interesting thing for our business. You know, I've always, I've always said that our business is strong all the time. If you own a co-living property, you're going to be okay, okay? Because there's, we're in, we actually got a negative vacancy right now. We put four rooms to the market, 16 people apply for it, which means we've got 12 people to put into the next house. We produce a house every four weeks and can be as quick as two weeks. So we're talking taking a four bedroom, two bathroom house into a five bedroom, five bathroom, fully furnished, locked, loaded, photographed and ready to be rented within four weeks. So from the Monday to the fourth Friday, and that's how quick we can do it. Um, so my team, so we employ everyone in our company and they do the whole lot. They get in, it's just clockwork. And, it's not a shabby job. We do a really good job at doing that, adding extra bathrooms and bits and pieces. So when COVID hit, all the naysayers said, oh, what are you going to do now, Ian? Because, you know, everyone, all your students are leaving and going back overseas. Well, we don't rent to students. We rent to young professionals mostly. <sighs> Actually, that's not true. The biggest growing demographic of homelessness in the country right now is the 55 single female. Yeah. And I had no idea about that 10 years ago until we were putting these houses to market and we would get application upon application. And, um, and so what we, do, what we did back then was we would fill these houses with 55-year-olds because they're great tenants and residents yeah. to have. And what we realised very quickly was you should never put more than one in the same house because they tear each other apart, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially and, women. Oh, yeah. And, and it's about, you know, you shouldn't be using the washing machine between 2 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, why not? Because that's, I never did that in my house. And so that's, that's their rule, really? right? And so they stick to that rule. So what we realised was that we put in a 55-year-old as our anchor resident. She looks after the place, she lets you know when things go wrong, she's bought her pink toolbox and fixes stuff. And no, you know, they just, they, they have a purpose because Whoa. their 20 to 30 years of looking house and home was, was changed when their kids went off and lived their own lives and they were left with this husband that they stopped basically loving 10 or 15 years earlier. They got waived a little bit of money to, to take the settlement and she just wanted out. No super, no qualification, but the most qualified people in the country which means they couldn't get a job. So, and the cost of living was huge, right? And rightfully so, she should still be able to get her hair done. She should still be able to go to lunch with her friends. And so what they're doing is, it's really quite interesting because we could show a 55 year old one of our really nicely appointed, fully furnished one bedroom micros uh, apartments and they would come in and go, you know what, I'm just not sure about the color on that wall. And you go, you do realise that tomorrow you're homeless. Yeah, I know, but it's just not right for me. Wow. So they actually have to go through the, ex I, I tried to get them to take it, but I realised that they needed to go through the experience of, okay, literally realising they were homeless, that they were couch surfing or living in the back of a car or whatever, and it wasn't comfortable for them to eventually come back and say, yeah, actually, this is actually a good choice for me. Yeah. So when they do finally get in here, they become the matriarch in the in the in the property. They, you know, because we then you get a sixth sense as a property manager because you need to 
have a specific skill for co-living. You can't just go to a standard manager and that gets developed. So our management company knows how to put a household together and there'll be people where you go, that one, not good in that house, but over there's fine. So, cause you know that the matriarch, the type of person she is and the type of people in the household and how they'll function together. Oh. Now you put them together and, and it gives them a purpose to, to, to oh, interact, sure. yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So going back to your question, when COVID hit, everyone said, oh, you know, what are you gonna do now? They're all going, well, we don't do students. And yeah, there were some overseas um, visa holders that had to go. And so there was a little bit of an, a vacancy for about six weeks. But after the first lockdown and the release of the first lockdown, we were negative vacancy because of exactly what you said. People were isolated in on their own, in their own homes, not being able to interact or contact anyone. And even though they could call or they could Zoom or they could do whatever, they didn't have the physical face-to-face -face mm. contact. Mm. So we ended up putting houses together that were essential worker houses. Um, so those people that were COVID possibilities were all housed together. Then we had houses that of people that were possibly going to get really sick from COVID. So they were isolated, um, but together. And then we had worker households. So we ended up with an increase people wanting to move into our properties based on the fact that the social isolation was killing them outside mm -hmm. of it. Well, that feeds into your, uh, Isaac, your number one key to longevity which is social integration so the integration yes. of people of different age groups and demographics being able to to engage and, and communicate yeah. but, and learn from each other yeah yep. what, what i really want to go back to a little bit here is how old were you when you had that crisis and that, that shifted everything for you and then how long did it take for you to transition from that emptiness of what you created with all that abundance to where you're at now because I know there's a lot of people that would be listening that are looking they're unhappy want to change their life but may think it's too late or may, might take too long yeah I, I sometimes wonder because you know um, having been a public speaker for a long time I actually miss public speaking I haven't done it as much as I used to but newly married and and probably for now right not right mm -hmm. But I used to talk about this all the time. I used to say to people, okay, how old are you? Well, I'm nearly 45 or 50 years old. I go, okay, so you're concerned that you don't have enough time to make a change right now. But realistically, you only really started working at the age of 20. So you're only halfway through your working life. And with the experience that you've gained now, how much more could you do and how much quicker could you do it to make that change before you're 55 or 60 or at age of retirement? Because realistically, you're only halfway. For us, the change was quick. We're talking like it took three months probably from that day to get into the first deal of what we wanted to do in co-living with the mistakes that happened in that, but the successes that came alongside that as well. So ironically, we ended up making more money in six months from that day than what we were previous to that day. <laughs> and three months is such a short amount of time. Yeah, and, and when you're... When you've got, there's nothing, um, my, my, I like talking to my kids and, um, and my stepkids about this. Are you the donkey that gets fed by the reward of the carrot that's in front of you and you, that, that moving forward gives you the reward or do you need the whip on the ass to move you forward? And for me, most people are the pain. Yes. Mm -hmm. And for me, that, that, three <laughs> month, that three month turnaround was the pain of the realization that not only did I want to end my life, but the way I was going to do it was so, so selfish. It was going to leave so many, un I've, not, I've only ever told um, Holly, my wife, um, how I was going to do it, but it would have left so many unanswered questions and so much understanding of whether it actually was suicide or it was something else. And, and far out to think about the fact that not only were you going to commit the most selfish act known to human, you were going to then create even more unknown around it. That, that was a devastating pain for me. So, so I think when you've got that pain, when you've got that need to change, you know, you don't have a choice. And everyone can always just go back to the same thing of saying, well, I'm not worse off. You know, what is it? Gary, Gary V always says, you know, unless, unless you're the seventh billion person worth off, worse off in this world, don't come and talk to me. Stop <laughs> whinging and just get on with life, yeah. right? Because 
you know, I've got a mate of mine. So one, so we've started over 30 businesses in 30 years. Um, I think we're at 31 at 32 years or something like that. I've got a, one of my business partners, uh, Roy Ames, his son, Matthew Ames, was a engineer for gas company, went into hospital with the flu and un, not really like him to go in for a flu. They sent him home. He went back in again. They sent him home. He went back in. He woke up um, three and a half weeks later out of a coma where he had a step B infection go internal and the only way to save his life was to amputate his arms and legs, but not not just the ends of them, all the way to stub. So he woke up three and a half weeks later looking at the ceiling and they had to bring him out of the coma three times and his wife had to explain twice how they had to tell the kids that come and go in and you might have to say goodbye to your dad and he teared up at those two times, but he didn't remember the first two times, but he knows that his wife said that's you teared up at that point in time. But Matthew Ames and his book, Will to Live, he smiles. Yeah. He, he's had a second chance at life and he's making a difference to so many people around. Like tingles all over there's only, <laughs> I think there's only four quadruple amputees ever existing in, that's existed and lived in the world. Um, and he's one of them. And he's the first where they brought, the, they brought stainless steel stubs out of his bones because they were so short. Um, and then brought the nerve endings out to on the skin and he attaches his prosthesis to it. And all he has to do is think, close his oh, fist and the nerves do it, right? And um, he's the guy that you want when you've got a flat tire because <laughs> he can think, he can think, turn my wrist and his wrist will go around and around. <laughs> and around. <laughs> what a bonus. But, you know, um, he lives in Brisbane and it's such a beautiful family and the support that he's had and, and they're, they're very funny too. Um, they, they, they had a website called Renovating Matthew. Um, you know, <laughs> so um, incredibly intelligent, really nice guy. And, and if I'm having a bad day, I just sort of pull his book off the shelf and I just look at the cover and I go, you know, <sighs> Yeah, sometimes that's with... all, you, you know, when you have that memory of a book that really did yeah. something to you. Yeah, yeah. And all, sometimes that's all you need, just to hold it and look at the, look at the book and you remember everything. Wow, after listening to that, when I'm having a sookie moment about a problem, I'm going to remind myself, this guy has lost all of his limbs. Perspective, yeah, buddy. Yeah. And he still gets around. He drives now. Um, he, you know, he's, he had two wishes, uh, when, two goals, the big goals that he'd set. One was to hug his daughter again, um, so pull her in close, mm-hmm. and the other one was to wipe his bum. And so he's achieved both of those. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, and um, so, you know, there's so many stories that, that you can always go back to. And if you're in pain, just find where that pain is coming from and use that as a source for you to be able to move forward. What was the moment you made the decision to say, uh-oh, no? Oh, no, I, was, I would have done it had it not been for um, Michelle, my life coach, and Christine going, hang on, can you just tell us where you're at right now? And I said, no, no, I'm all good, I'm good. And they, they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And... You know, there was a whole bunch of things going on at the time. I'd, you know, I can honestly say that I've had my heart broken probably four times and only once was it a life partner. The other three times were people that were mentors or close to me and one of them had just thrown me under the bus. And so I was sort of devastated from that, then realising that the money wasn't making me happy I've done the six world major marathons and I'm one marathon off the seven continents um, as well. And at the time I had New York marathon booked in, but I couldn't do it because my knee was out um, and it needed operating as well. So I wasn't getting the physical exercise. I wasn't getting the endorphins and all of the four chemicals that you want running through your body to be able to keep you stable. And so, like I said, I don't even remember the sentence and I could ask Christine, but it was, it saved your life, essentially. Yeah, and maybe oh. maybe it was a non-conscious way to be able to bring it forward yeah. to say something was going on. Yeah, but I know I, I know that no one can lift you out of that hole, but it helps when someone's thrown the rope down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what had happened to me. There, there were there people around making sure that I was safe. Um, I never needed to be on watch where some people do. Uh, because because it was at that moment in time where the realization I'm I'm like a brick in the face person. You could tell me until I'm blue in the face that there's a problem in my life, but until the brick hits me, I'm not changing. But 
as soon as I see it, I'm done. Like yes. you, that's a, it's a, it's, it's yeah, it's a reframe and it's done. So that's what happened at that moment that we needed to find ways to to fulfil me um, more than anyone else to to run the business in a different way. Well, thank goodness that <laughs> that day changed yeah. everything, and now you're changing the the demographic and the way that we live. And what I'm hearing actually is some beautiful traditions that I see internationally but don't see in Australia. It's very much a, all right, you're 18, get out, see ya, you're on your own and, and that whole housing situation occurs. But um, you go to other places around the world like we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. and they do cohabitate with generations. Yep. You know, you look at the beautiful way Bali lives in the on the one property and the, yep. the elders are at a higher level in, in the same space because they're they're respected for their wisdom etc and we don't really have that culture here no and you know we, we've got you look at asian countries the children are brought up by grandparents you know yeah. um the parents go out and do their work and um the grandparents bring up the children and then that gets handed over when when the next lot comes through as well my family europeans you know i'm, I'm australian born from spanish migrants same thing my parents were living when before they emigrated with their parents because there was just no other way to do it. So I think there's a lot of, whilst we're a very multicultural country, we don't take on the full influence of the countries when they come here because we Australianise people, which is fine, you know. I agree that we are starting to take hold of other, other countries and how they run and, you know, Hong Kong is still the most unaffordable city in the world when it comes to housing. And there was a point in time in 2017 where Hobart was the second most unaffordable housing oh city gosh. in the world. Yeah, when you look at wages compared to the cost of housing, yeah, Hobart um, ticked over into number two. But out of the top 20 most unaffordable cities uh, that get announced every year, Australia generally has 13 or 14 in the top 20, yeah. um, which includes Sydney at number two, Melbourne normally at number four or five um, behind Auckland, Hong Kong at number one, Gold Coast normally makes it, Sunshine Coast normally makes it. So Gold Coast, as an example, has had an increase to rental of 44.6% since the, so from for two years from June 2020, mm-hmm. we've had a 44.6% increase in rental costs in on the Gold Coast, um, the second biggest increase in the country um, behind one of the Perth suburbs. So you look at in 2020, you were paying $400 a week rent. You're now paying nearly 800 a week. And I, I honestly haven't been able to wrap my head around how people are affording afford that it. because yeah. I'm self-employed, yeah. so I have some flexibility. Mm-hmm. But... If I had have been employed, there is no way I could have found that extra money just for rent. There is no, there is one place in Australia that you can live in off Newstart. That's it, one place. And so when we start putting into the marketplace something that's half decent and reasonable, we get, you get the standard TikToker that, you know, will catch one of our ads and go, how dare they that they're, you know, they're, they're raping people for all this money and it costs them this much to live in. What's your nearest opportunity to what we're offering? We're offering at somewhere between 350 to 400 on the Gold Coast, as an example, mm-hmm. which includes utilities, which is a one bedroom apartment and you only have to look after your area. The next one up is 800. Like you're doubling the rent. You're well, literally what... solving a massive problem. Yeah. And yeah. so they sort of come and go they get their um two million hits and they disappear into the water you know you're doing it right when you get your hands yeah that's it it's, yeah. Isn't, don't they say you know you've made it when you yeah, start yeah. getting it takes, you know it's really hard it's it is actually very hard for someone like myself who does wear their heart on their sleeve yeah. and over the you know we've we do a lot of, so people always say yeah but all you do is you're a you're a spruker you're marketing and you're trying to get people to invest in property yeah because without those people i can't fix the problem i can't go i can't go marketing the people that need the properties i need to market to the people who supply the properties exactly. so someone can live in them right yeah. um and so you get the haters and you know that you get i break it down into thirds one third of them you you'll you'll interact with and go backwards and forwards and they'll go, you know what? I'm sorry. I really did go hard on you there. Now that you've explained it, it makes a lot of sense and good on you. The other third that goes, yeah, look, I've heard what you've got to say. I don't necessarily agree with you, but you're having a go. Because I usually will say, 
this is my attempt, what are you doing, right? And then you'll get the other third that are just, there is no way in the world that you're convincing them any other way. They've made their mind up that you're an asshole and that's the end of it. And so that does get to me. And so I've got a really brilliant, <laughs> I've just got such a beautiful team around me. You know, there's, there's 14 or 15 of us that are the core group in my business and they, they would jump in in front of a train for me. Wow, you know, um, that's amazing. Um, as much as I've helped them, they help me. Yeah. And, you know, every time something blows up in the business, they're there. And it doesn't matter whether it's 11 o'clock at night or 4 a.m. in the morning. If they need to be there, they'd be there. And, um, and so they know, they see it, they see me edging and they know, oh, he's probably answering too many Facebook posts at the moment. <laughs> so, so they intercept and pretend to be Ian for a while and they know how to respond and whatever and they give me a break. Yeah, look, I, I'm just so grateful that, you know, in this life you, you have the opportunity to do things and I'm just incredibly grateful for the people that show up, the mentors that have just appeared in my life and direct you into colonic irrigation or um, yeah, I'm, I'm astounded by the <laughs> accidental yes. areas that you've fallen into that have created yeah. such a trajectory. Oh, there's definitely a shit theme that goes through it. Um, <laughs> and, you it know, is. and people just appear and um, it was only just today, Holly and I just reset our personal goals and I, I set my goals and I've shown other people how to do this and I teach people how to do it in what we call whole, W-H-O-L-E. Yes, I love this whole concept. Could you explain more about it and what advice you would give to people to apply it to their own lives? So whole is um, an acronym for wealth, health, opportunity, love, evolution. So wealth, health, it's obvious. Opportunity is what is it that I can do to affect and help someone else in a positive way? Love very deep into the masculine and feminine and what our jobs are and and the masculine, not male, female, masculine, feminine, to be able to to integrate with your partner to for the masculine to take the feminine to God, as David Data would say, you know, what mm. I, I just I feel so bad for women nowadays with the pressure of porn and whatever goes on in there and they don't really have an understanding that you can have an external climax, you can have an internal climax um, through your G-spot, but um, only 2% of women ever have a cervical orgasm which can pop the back of their head off. But that requires a masculine energy to be able to bring that forward and be able to connect spiritually with Mm. them. And so then you've got evolution, which is the eon whole, which is... I talk about um, being the bottom of your triangle. Being the bottom of your triangle means that by default, you get sucked into a vortex. So if you imagine the shape of a triangle and you've got a yoga class, well, at the top of the triangle of the yoga class is the yogi and you want to be as around as many of the people at the top of that triangle, especially if you're the bottom, because by default and by being hanging around them, you'll become better at yoga, um, whether it be sexual yoga, whether it be, you know, whatever form of yoga that you choose. Same as if you choose your financial section and your triangle, you want to be hanging around people that are worth 10 times you. Because if you are the top of your triangle, then the people below you are actually going to be sucking your energy. Now, that doesn't sound great, but that's a fact. That's you know, they used to, used to say, you know, who are your five closest friends, not yeah. family or friends? What do they earn? And you'll be within spitting distance of that. So if you want to earn more, get around people that earn more. If you want better relationships, get around people with more um, increased connection in their spirituality and their relationships. So for us, it's about we set goals this morning, Holly and I, about evolution. And for me, every time I've set an evolution goal, by default, the person that I've wanted to be closer to has turned up in my life, right? Sometimes named, sometimes this is what they look like or sound like. Um, I named one for this year. A couple of years ago, I I named a, a a mate of mine called Steve McKnight, um, who is probably the most well-known investor, book writer in property investment. But he's, but at the time that I wanted Steve in my life, it was because of who he was as a person, not as an investor. He's, um, you know, he just keeps me honest. And, and it's, those, it's that evolution part that makes the best personal development because when you've got someone that's around you that is a mentor that you strive to be as same as or better than you've then internally have a competition for yourself you know I for a long time I actually had a 
you know, there's a few of us that were out there, Kerwin Rain or whatever, that had a you know, Gary V cameraman in your face 24-7. You cannot afford to be anything other than good when the camera's pointing <laughs> yeah, in your face the sure whole time, you know. <laughs> and that, that automatically then creates the path of staying like that. You know, I have my days. Everyone has their days. But when you've got a camera poked, there's less of those days. Because <laughs> I've, I've seen a few and I've had uh, one or two videos made about me on bad days. Um, and I've seen a few. Kerwin has an example where he's had some bad days where he ripped into staff members on one particular day and he had the fortitude to actually put that video out there as much as he didn't want to because everyone gets caught on bad days. Absolutely. And I think... Mm. For me personally, I am also setting goals to hang around with and spend time with people that are at the pinnacle of where I want to be. That's certainly one of my goals for this year. But I also, for me, it's really important that they do show you spoke very early on in this conversation about vulnerability Mm. uh, and how that set you on your pathway. And I can see a consistent theme through this conversation of vulnerability. But I feel like those bad days are part of the courage of vulnerability. Yeah to show that it's not all rainbows and butterflies. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's what people need to see because when people are putting out videos about their or Instagram posts about how great their life is and that's the judgment of other people that, oh, geez, I wish I had their life. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always said, oh, you know, people used to come at me at events and go, geez, I wish I could be you. You go, what, are you serious? Like there is a set of circumstances in my life that I deal with in different ways and different circumstances. And if you don't know how to deal with them and you've got my life, you're done. Like yeah. you've learned how to deal with what you with you've got. Let's work on that one rather than wanting to be someone else, you know. And and the whole thing about setting goals is, especially in the Western world, is that they, they've done the standard white thing. I'm going to take this goal setting process and I'm going to make it practical and pragmatic about it, you know. So let's make sure that you know, that, that it's um, realistic and it's timely. And, you know, we, we'll use the SMART process because that's the best way. You attach no emotion to that goal. You're, that's not a goal, that, right? That is exactly yes. why. I changed the word goal because of that whole SMART process. Yeah. process. I changed it from goals to targets because target I could see and I get a laser bullseye focus yep. when I set a target. But a goal for me was elusive. It moved yep. and was never something I could really move towards yeah so i I run a process um with people and i just basically say rightio let's let's you want to set a goal you've got five that you can set and let's break those down into targets from there but let's firstly ask the questions what's the actual goal and is it measurable where is it that when you achieve the goal what's the date who are you with what is something that you physically see that will, will show you that that goal has been achieved? And where's the evidence that you've achieved that? Because it needs to be measurable. And what emotion do you feel? So just, you know, first thought, best thought. What's the, what's the emotion that you feel when you've successfully done something in the past? Okay, that emotion. Where did you just feel that? Where? Okay, write it down. So then the goal has to be written on the day that you've achieved it. So, you know, for me, I, I can basically tell you, we're just about to buy a new property. Um, so we've just finished this beautiful two-acre waterfront property and, we're, and then our dream property came up, which is 40 acres on the main river. So big project to do. So it's, the, um, so it's an hour before the 30th. It's, it's an hour before New Year's Day on the 31st of December 2023. And Holly and I... <laughs> Uh, standing on our deck of our of our new house, which is at lockup stage, inside of our family and friends, enjoying what is just about to be a first firework action oh. out of our mm. dream property called Sueños, which is um, Spanish for dreams. I look deeply into Holly's eyes, and I know that this is the right thing for us at the time. So, if you can. If you can read your goal, think about your goal and know that it's attached emotionally, it's just created a neural pathway where you will, by default, in your RAS, your reticulator reticulator activated system, going out and sourcing every piece of information non-consciously to make that goal happen. And, you know, that's happened through a lot of my last 25 years where I'll say to myself, oh, I'm going to buy a property over there, and, you know, and, and lo and behold, the property comes up for sale by default, by some action, sometime where you just happened to be looking in a paper and that one popped up, right? So those are the sort of things that, that we need to know as Westerners, that if we start 
to look at goals as an emotional attachment to what you want to achieve, then you're going to achieve them. I always go back to that one quote I read maybe when I was 25, rich people have a lot of money and wealthy people have time to spend it. Mm. And I was rich. I wasn't wealthy. So, you know, all my kids know that quote now. Um, You know, one of them, you know, my stepkids, which I've known only now for, for a couple of years, say, oh, you're rich. And I'll look at them and go, no, you're not. Oh, you're wealthy, aren't you? And I go, yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's good to know that there's messages getting passed down the line. That's incredible. Yeah. What an amazing conversation. Wow. And how many uh, dynamic directions that we went in. Incredible. So how do people find you? Are you still mentoring and that sort of thing? Yeah, mentoring's dropped off a little bit. We're sort of in a hiatus around that. We realized that I could mentor and show people how to do this, but really my, our best effective outcome was for us to produce the properties for people because we've got the skill set and we've got the experience. So people are just going, look, I'm too busy working. Give me the cash flow and give me the capital growth that's going to happen over 10 years. And so we go out and source that property and or convert their existing properties. So <laughs> poledancing.com, no. Um, <laughs> so you've got your website and I know people are going to be very interested, some wanting to live in these co-living communities and those that want to invest. Yeah, the name of the business is Invida, so I-N-V-I-D-A, like Vida, living the Vida Loca. Vida is Spanish for life. And so when we came up with that name, we looked at what did we want to do in the housing industry and we wanted to bring life back into the housing industry, not just for the people that lived in the houses because they're now saving themselves one third or one half of their weekly rent. We wanted to bring life back into the investor who was struggling to make ends meet because uh, you know interest rates are rising, so that's giving them life back as well. We wanted to give life back to the government so that they can concentrate on their housing needs and um, taking the middle off the, off the bottom of the waiting list for them. Um, but more importantly, what we realised was that the standard Australian house, the four-bedroom, two-bathroom, which has become of prominence in the last 50 years, has actually taken taking life away from the family. It stopped creating the interaction of a family like when I was a kid, that I would have a small house that we were living in as a family, but we would cross paths all the time because, you know, you had your bedrooms, but it weren't that big. And then we'd live in the common areas and you'd always be playing in the backyard or something. And then when you left the front of my home, which was a brown and white speckled arch house with brown um, bars on the windows, but next door was my Auntie Carmel's house, who was a, a asbestos clad property. And across the road was, um, you know, Nick and, and Angela and their kids were a Greek family and, you know, we had Greeks next door and Germans down the road. And, you know, that interaction, when you lose the family unit within the house, you lose the life of the community. Mm-hmm. And what we realised was if we can bring that community back into the family home by creating co-living properties, we then start to create a community of people out in the street as well. And for me the defining moment of bringing life back into property through invita.com.au was my auntie Carmel, because of circumstances in my mother's life, would get me up out of bed in the morning and she'd get me dressed and she'd get me breakfast and she'd get me off to school. Mm. And my auntie Carmel, it wasn't until the age of about 11 that I realised that, and I'll say this as plainly as it is, that the white chick next door compared to the Caucasian guy that lived in an olive skin guy that lived in the other house, she wasn't really my auntie, but I didn't realize that until the age of 11. But oh. when she died, the impact on me was huge. So she felt like family. She's Genetics was closer, closer yeah. to me than any of my blood That's aunties. That's how I see family. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. so if we can bring that back in, and there are pockets of Australia that still exist like that. Mm-hmm. That's the reason that we went and invested in Tasmania four or five years ago because we saw pockets of community that still operate and work together. Mm-hmm. And so Invita is about bringing life back into property. Yeah, it's so much healthier, like in the Blue Zones, like in Sardinia. You've got all of these communities all together. I, I think mm-hmm. I might finish with, um, so I did a full, we contracted on a race course and turned to turn it into housing. And um, I've done the, I did the overall plan for the property. And the ring road will remain as the ring road for, for the whole estate. And in the middle will be a community centre, which will house the 26 different clubs that used, you know, the Pigeon Club and the Guinea Pig Club and all that. There'll be, that will also cater for four different churches 
that will use that facility at different times during the week because they don't need they, they need only a specific amount of time to be able to use idea. the same church. Yes. And that idea came from one of our properties in middle of Queensland where they had um, this tiny little town, three different churches of three different denominations. So they two of them sold their churches. They put all their money in one bank account and used the other church and they had one Anglican on a Sunday. The following Sunday, they had the Catholic one. And the following Sunday, I think they had Jehovah's Witness. And then the fourth Sunday, they had a mixed church day where That's all of them fabulous. turned up, right? And it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and ironically, on the fourth Sunday, they would go to each other's masses during the, the, the months anyway, right? And they just started to learn about other stuff. So then there's all different type of housing. Like I said, adaptable all the way through. And this and I'm not doing anything that's any different to what's been done overseas here, right? So you may have seen overseas in Finland where they built accommodation for students that would get a reduced rate to be able to live in a two-bedroom house with their own spaces but a middle area with a retiree so that they could actually give life back to each I other, right? Yeah. About this, and so yeah. then a retirement village on one end of a building, a nursing home on the other end of the building, but in the middle, a childcare centre, whereas part of the childcare centre, the lease clearly indicates that you need to visit the retirement village twice a week and the nursing home twice a week. And so I thought there was no measurable of this, but working within the um, age fraternity, they said, yeah, there's measurables that we can put into place yeah. for increase in happiness, decrease of pharmaceuticals, increase in longevity of life and a whole list of other components that they can measure based on what's going to happen in that building. And so this is what we need more of, not just in Australia, but around the world. There's key components around the world. But if you can start creating this in one space, then there's some incredible measurables that can come from it. Well, I certainly welcome community back, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Days of playing in the front yard and and all the sounds of the children in each other's yards and yeah. things, they seem to be gone. Yeah, when you're unwell and they bring you a big pot of soup. And it's not just the food, it's the love and warmth in it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. It's, it's what's in the soup um, of what was put into it with the heart yeah. that actually does the, yeah. the, 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 the healing. healing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And the world is a better place for you being on it, man. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for joining this podcast. Want to take the conversation further and learn more about how to live an energized, pain-free life as you age? Jump into our free Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash defy your numbers. If you have any questions or ideas for topics, shoot us an email at hi at agerebels.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Age Rebels Revolution. Mm-hmm.